From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn & Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Being connected to the internet is more important than ever. The Valley, however, suffers from a digital divide. There's a problem between the haves and the have-nots. What can we do about that? California's nonpartisan Little Hoover Commission may have some answers. We're delighted to have the commission's chair, Pedro Nava, as our guest. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Well, it's great to be with you. You know, it's been a long time since we've had a chance to talk. I know. I'm glad we have, we're having this opportunity. It's certainly a very important topic. Um, let me ask you this. Before we get started, let's talk about some basic terms and concepts. Because you get thrown around to the non-techie types. They, don't, they really don't know. I include myself in that group. What are some of the uh, different types of broadband connections? Well, there's, there's essentially three types. So there's the DSL, which is the phone line. Uh, that's the, the slowest, but it's the most affordable. A step up from DSL is cable, which most people will get through their cable provider if they're uh, uh, hooked up with someone to watch TV. And then the fastest and the best, but also a little bit more expensive, is fiber. So the, the fiber uh, uh, internet availability is where you have your faster speeds. And quite frankly, it's what California needs in order to compete with other states and also with um, other countries. Yeah, yeah you know, it's stay competitive. You've got to be on the cutting edge for sure. Um, let me ask you this. So can you briefly explain the fiber brand, uh, broadband network in short and what types of fiber do you need to go into your home? Well, this is, and I, I'm going to forget this as soon as I say it or read it. There's, you've got, you have FTTH, FTTB, FTTP, which is fiber to home to business or premises. Uh, and that is the fastest, um, but- Wow, that's like, that's like alphabet soup. Uh, yeah, well, I know, which is, which is why most people just sort of go to their cable provider and sign up for it. Uh, but you also have fiber to node or your neighborhood, and then you have fiber to curb or cabinet, which is a box that is uh, attached to your business or to your home. So okay. there's, there's at least those three different uh, kinds of approaches. Okay, so how do you define how if an individual is, you know, quote unquote, connected? Well, you have your downstream speed and you have your upstream speed. And the downstream speed is actually like what you download. So um, uh, when you go and you use your internet with your uh, e- email and the rest of that, you're downloading information, you're downloading images. The uh, up, upstream is when you are sending things from your device to somebody else uh, through the internet. So uh, the FCC, the uh, Federal Communications uh, uh, Commission, defines broadband, which is what we're talking about, 
as speeds that are 25 megabits per second. That's where you hear the MBPS for downstream and three megabits for upstream. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that there's, there's a different number there. You'd think that the numbers would be the same. Yeah, but, but, but they're not. Apparently what uh, most people rely upon, obviously, is the downstream speed. It is when you connect to uh, uh, Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is, you want the fastest speed possible so that the images and the text arrive at your computer uh, uh, quickly. Uh, upstream seems to not uh, be quite as important for certainly most consumer use. Yeah, so so how do we you know, talk about how does the U.S. compare, for example, um, you know, how many first of all, how many Americans have you know meet that benchmark, and then how do we compare to other countries? Well, it's interesting. The FCC uh, in in a report uh, uh, tells us that 21.3 million Americans lack a connection to the internet that meets the FCC definition of broadband. Again, 25 megabits uh, download, uh, three megabits upload, downstream, upstream. Um, and there is an organization that's called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, which surveys uh, countries all over the world. And uh, the United States of America is ranked 31st out of 36 of the o OCED countries. So th the point that I was making earlier with respect to uh, international competition uh, we're like in, at, at 31. That's yeah, not we're, we're not doing well. And one of the things I noticed in your report, you're talking about U.S. cities pay more for slower Internet than than other cities around the world. For example, for fifty dollars uh, in U.S. cities, um, you're getting between 25 and 45 Mbps. You go to Hong Kong and Seoul, you're getting 300 right. um, Mbps for for the same price. And even in Paris and Tokyo, you're getting 200. So they're 10 to 12 times faster Absolutely. for the same money, right. um, which is which is pretty interesting. I'm in Santa Barbara, and uh, the service we have here, because um, uh, both my wife and I work out of, the, out of our home, so we get 150 megabits per second. We pay about $75 a month for that, 150 megabits. Now, the next step up is 500 megabits, and to do that, it's going to cost us almost $100. So... The, the the providers, the internet service providers, um, uh, because of a lack of competition, are able to do two things, have slower speeds and charge more money. <laughs> That's like the worst possible combination, right? Um, well, yeah. yeah. Let me ask, let me ask you this. Um, you note in your report uh, that the these numbers uh, it may actually be an underestimate. Why why is that? And what are the implications? Well, it's an it's it, it, it's sort of an interesting uh approach that the FCC does. And, and I think most people wouldn't do it that this way, but they, they decide uh, internet access based on a census block. So a census block is a geographical area uh, uh, that is specifically defined. And so the FCC says, if we find one person within a census block, then we consider that everybody in that census block actually has broadband. It's a fiction. It's a very strange fiction um, that doesn't seem to me to be based on a reality. Right, right. Just because one person has it doesn't mean everybody in the, in the, on the block has it. Yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's like if my neighbor has a Cadillac Escalade, I guess we assume that everybody else has one. <laughs> right. Would it be so? Um, yeah. so? So what are the implications of that? Well, the implications are that in planning, 
um, uh, it makes for poor planning. And there is federal money that is available to communities to help them expand their internet access. But if the FCC, based on what I consider to be a faulty analysis, comes to the conclusion that your census block in your city already has adequate broadband, then you're not going to get federal dollars to expand the services. So you may in fact be deprived of the opportunity to have the broadband that you need because of this faulty assessment by the FCC. We're, we're running out of time for this segment. Just real quickly, where does California stand? Are we better or worse? Yeah, you know, we've got uh, 94% of Californians have access to broadband, but there are other places that have higher percentages of communities with broadband. Uh, our guest is Pedro Nava, the chairman of the of California's nonpartisan Little Hoover Commission. They recently issued a report on closing California's digital divide. So um, first, uh, a lot has been made of the fact uh, about the quality and, and quantity of broadband access. Uh, it really comes down to, you mentioned this earlier, comes down to one word, competition, or the lack of it. Um, what did you find? Well, I, what I found was that, uh, you know, businesses talk about the importance of competition um, until they have to do it. And then they don't like it so much. So what happens is the internet service providers actually carve up territory so that they don't end up competing with another internet service provider. And so that ends up with the, uh, higher broadband prices. So when you have areas that are served by monopolies, which is what happens when you have one entity that controls it all, those 35% those, uh, lower, those speeds are 35% lower than areas that have competition. Yeah, competition is absolutely key. So one thing that's been discussed is something called uh, municipally owned fiber networks. Can you explain right. how that works? Well, I mean, you brought up the point uh, earlier about uh, the Fresno area um, and broadband speed in communities there. But what is happening with, with broadband is the same sort of thing that's being done with providing uh, energy to communities. They form their own municipally owned fiber network. And so as an example, you know, there's nothing that stops Fresno, uh, if it chooses to do so, from uh, uh, commencing to build their own internet uh, uh, network. So if Beverly Hills can have it, no surprise, but also Truckee, as an example. Truckee has, uh, is a public utility that has fiber network uh, and broadband speed for the, its residents. So, so one of the ones that's pointed to as an example, a very successful model happened in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, what exactly ha happened? What happened there? I've been to Chattanooga. I have seen that internet. It's like it almost burned up my phone. They have routinely provide people with a thousand megabits per second at a price that is around $75 uh, for that much broadband. But what they did, and it was smart, they knew they had to upgrade their electrical system. And so when they upgraded it, they also added fiber to it. So they, and they did that deliberately so that they could attract uh, uh, businesses, internet businesses to the, to the area. They got $100 million, $111 million from the Department of Energy and used that to help subsidize the cost of providing that service to people in their community. They serve more than 100,000 homes and nearly two thirds of the homes and businesses in that community get 1,000 megabits. And that's incredible. I mean, the speeds yeah. are better than, than you'd find in, in, in Seoul and, and, you know, some of the top places in the world and, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. Right. Uh, what's interesting about that is the, is the kind of the dig smart, you know, idea that if you're dropping cable or you're, re you're reconstructing a road or something, that you're doing the fiber optics at the same time. It just, it's just planning, right? Um, right. 
right. good planning. You know, measure, well, you measure to, twice, not once. Yeah, you have to you have to have elected officials that have a vision. And so in Chattanooga, they did. And what they also found was that they generated jobs. The estimates for Chattanooga are anywhere between 2,800 and 5,200 new jobs. And then in terms of economic and social benefits, anywhere from 865 million to $1.3 billion attributed to building up their, uh, their broadband system. Yeah, and I would also, it also seemed that it would attract you know, new investments. I mean, if you have a situation where you said, it's funny, there's a great analogy that it was burning up your lines that was so fast. Um, <laughs> You know, you're going from from 150 to to a thousand. That's like a you know going in a car. You know, 150 to to a thousand miles an hour. That's that's a, a big increase in speed. Right. Uh, that I would seem to attract new businesses. Well, and 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 they did right. But what they did in Chattanooga, besides um, uh, improving their uh, broadband capabilities, uh, was they also had some tax credits to attract businesses to that community. And so they've got. They've got uh, Amazon and VW expanded into Chattanooga. They have uh, uh, startups that are there in some larger numbers, as well as uh, new venture capital funds are based in uh, Chattanooga. Because also what you'll find compared to California, and I love California, I'm not moving, I'm not leaving, but the, the cost of living in Chattanooga is, is substantially less than a place like California. Yeah, and that that that's interesting. You know, um, I happen to have a niece who is uh, working for a data analytics company in New York City from San Diego, um, and I think this is the new world. You know, the saying goes, "No one bats a thousand. That's particularly true when it comes to cutting edge technology. Uh, there's some pr- attempts to ch- uh, close the digital divide that have been less successful than others, but they can tell us something as well. Our guest is Pedro Nava, the chair of the nonpartisan Little Hoover Commission. Uh, who's done a report on closing the state's digital divide. So let's talk about some of the broadband efforts in California. Uh, first of all, this is not a new issue. Uh, cities have attempted to address uh, broadband access in the communities for some time. Uh, you, you would think, you know, San Francisco, for example, with its proximity to the Silicon Valley would be a model uh, example. Not so much. Um, what did you find? Well, you know, this is a this is an example of what I always talk about w- with people that there's a difference between in politics and the policy is that you want to have broadband for all your residents, but the politics become a, a, a problem. And it seems to me that when you have communities, large populations, and lots of different electeds and thousands of stakeholders, you're going to have uh, uh, complications. So San Francisco is an example of a place tried really hard to try to develop a plan, but it just never got off the ground. Um, at one point, they decided it looked like it was going to cost one dollars to uh, build out their fiber network. But then people in the community said, shouldn't we spend that money on housing, given how expensive housing is in San Francisco? So it just sort of just never got enough momentum to be successful. Um, and I understand that the, uh, the new mayor uh, has uh, wants to revisit some sort of broadband but it doesn't look to be this, as comprehensive as initially thought about. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I, I don't even know for this program because we're, we're doing it remotely. We're hoping the sound and the video come through clearly. Um, and I guess we'll see that in, in the editing process. Uh, it, as they say, it is what it is. Um, yeah. But I just want to let our audience know we're, we're doing the best we can in, in a difficult circumstance, trying to get good information to you. Um, and by the way, to the extent that you miss anything, after viewing this program, please go on to the Little Hoover Commission website and read the report. Um, it's, it's it's chock full of information. Let me ask you about Los Angeles. That was another example of things that didn't didn't work out so well. 
Yeah, you know, again, I mean, you take a look at Los Angeles, it's probably has more population than some uh, foreign countries. Um, but they wanted to do the same thing. They wanted to provide internet service, broadband to every resident. They did a, a, a study and found out the existing infrastructure uh, wasn't capable of doing the job. So if they were going to expand the broadband, it was going to take a significant amount of money. Then they divided the city up into what they call four quadrants and say, like, you know, how are you going to provide broadband to this particular quadrant? And they had talked about internet uh, service providers giving discounts and using, leasing some of the city infrastructure, but that didn't work out either. And then they figured out it was going to cost three to five billion dollars to do it. Um, and nobody came forward to, uh, uh, to assume that responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. So that didn't work out so well. But, you know, they, a lot of people say that government's the problem, right? Um, set up all these hurdles to stop innovation from happening. That's really not the case in California, is it? No, you know, and, and we've got some some legislators that have done their job and they've, they've done it appropriately. Uh, back in 2018, there was Assembly Bill 1999, expanded the authority of municipal and public utility districts to develop public broadband services um, and to apply what they call net neutrality so that uh, uh, it would be a fair uh, way for entities to become involved. Um, and so you can do it if you have the leadership and the vision and the willingness to take that step forward. So communities can use that legislation and develop their own broadband infrastructure and figure out how to partner with public, uh, do a public private partnership to get it done. You know, we're talking with Pedro Nava, who's the chairman of California's nonpartisan Little Hoover Commission, about how we can get internet access uh, to those who are still not connected. Um, you know, one of the things that you've talked about in your report is something called dark fiber. It's kind of an ominous name to it. It's unused fiber cables that have not been lit by internet service. Uh, it's an option that's being used by 16 cities um, down by uh, in LA. Apparently, they set out to create a, a broadband ring using the available dark fiber. How did that work out? Well, it worked out really well. Um, first of all, they had a, what they call a Measure M, which was a self-help transportation tax, and they were able to make the nexus between internet speed and transportation services so they could use $4.4 billion from that measure in 2019. So they created the core ring, which was the middle mile network architecture, and in that they had what they call, what you identified as uh, dark fiber and all that all dark fiber means is that there's no service being provided uh, through it at the moment but it means that it, it is available for leasing uh, uh, to entities that want to use it you know let me jump in here for a second you know just you were talking about this the tax a measure m in in la county um in fresno county for example it's also a self-help county they have something called measure c and so it deals with trans self it's we tax ourselves for transportation projects and so what, what, what it sounds like what they did in, in, in L.A. is they took that money and said, hey, we can synchronize lights. There's a there's a traffic connection. And so we can do that with this, you know, with the dark, dark um, fiber. And as a way also one of the added benefits is, is you increase speeds and, and accessibility right. to the Internet. So kind of a double hit, which is, you know, an efficient and effective use of tax dollars, I, I would think. You know, another one you talked about in your report was Santa Monica. Um, what I found interesting there was. They started way back in 1998 with a telecommunications master plan that kind of created a strategic roadmap. Um, as a result, they're very successful in implementing uh, this uh, public-private partnership model. Uh, what can you tell us about Santa Monica? Well, you know what you, what, what you said was accurate in terms of you know a public-private uh, partnership. So what they what the city agreed to do is lease institutional fiber network, right? 
for city buildings um, so that the, the city services would be connected with high-speed internet um, uh, using a local cable company. So it cost about $530,000 that was paid by the city to put that together. The cable a company in the city shared the uh, operation and maintenance costs going forward. So then they were able to also include the school district and community college. Uh, that helped the, uh, those institutions reduce their costs by $400,000 a year, huge savings. And then those savings grew to $500,000 a year. The city then reinvested the money to help build its own 10 megabit municipal fiber optic network and what they did, again, like Chattanooga, they adopted a dig once uh, policy, which means that they reduced installation costs by 90%. So you had some smart people doing some good work in the city of Santa Monica. You know, um, the valley, there's a difference between, you know, inland California and, and the coast. I'm just wondering, I want to get your perspective on what does closing the digital divide mean for places like the San Joaquin Valley? That's, that's often lagged other places in California when it comes to, you know, educational attainment, economic development, healthcare outcomes, et cetera. Yeah, it is unfortunate. Uh, and I think you're, you're accurate. There are two Californias. Um, you have coastal communities that have um, tremendous benefits, big population growth, uh, revenue being generated there. And then you have our rural counties and rural communities that don't have the same opportunities. And so you've got, even though the cost of living may be lower in our rural uh, communities and the populations there, are as deserving as everybody else, they tend to suffer from a lack of services. And so I think the state of California and, and Governor Gavin Newsom spoke of this early on about the two Californias and about how more attention needs to be paid to rural, uh, to rural areas. Um, we are one California and everyone should be treated in a way that respects their dignity and provides them with economic opportunities. So what does telemedicine look like on the front lines? We have a great person to answer that question, Dr. Casey Gray, the Chief of Information Technology at Kaiser Permanente Fresno. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. So um, in California, Kaiser has been uh, really one of the leaders, uh, early adapters of telehealth. What exactly does telehealth, um, telemedicine look like at, at Kaiser and how prevalent is its use? Yeah, so uh, telehealth has been in use for many years at Kaiser, actually dating back to the late 90s. Uh, we have been using various forms of remote visits, secure emails, telephone visits uh, since then. And uh, what we do now is mainly interact with patients um, virtually through a form of video visits, telephone visits, or uh, secure messages. And so many of our patients now, uh, instead of having to come to the office and potentially be exposed in this COVID uh, pandemic, uh, can stay home and reach out to us as their primary care providers and specialists uh, from the convenience of their homes. And we're able to provide an incredible amount of support and medicine uh, nowadays that we thought was really never possible in the past. And so between the combination with Kaiser Permanente of using our website, which is the kp.org website, where they can view labs, view their medical history, view their diagnoses, refill prescriptions and things like that, they can also reach out to me directly as their, for example, their pediatrician. No. That's but, interesting, too, because, you know, in certain places like the San Joaquin Valley, there's a real lack of, of doctors. It seems like it's going to open up a lot more opportunities for both, you know, general practitioners and also specialists, uh, you know, in medicine. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and when I talk about this remote care, it's not limited just to the primary care providers, but it is absolutely involving our specialists as well. The beauty of how we handle in Kaiser Permanente the video visits in particular is that I can actually pull a specialist into a video visit if I need to for a consultation on the fly. And I can also reach out to a specialist and do a video visit just between he and I or she and I uh, for a consultation that way as well. So we're able to reach a much broader range of patients now who don't have to worry about driving into the medical office, and especially in the Valley where patients do sometimes have quite a drive to get here. This is often offering a convenience factor that we haven't really seen before. Yeah, so, uh, so I'm thinking that um, telemedicine is really improving health outcomes, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, for, for patients um, in, in many ways. Yeah, I, I believe it is. I, I think that people have been, uh, you know, understandably afraid during this COVID-19 pandemic and haven't wanted to come to the office. And having the ability to use something like a video visit to reach out to a family from the safety and convenience of their home um, has really opened a lot of doors for patients. And it's allowed us to stay in touch with patients who need to continue and be in tight contract. Uh, tight contact with their primary care provider. So yeah, especially in a time like this, when patients don't want to come into the office, we allow them the option of seeing us through video, of contacting us by phone, or even by sending us email messages. For example, I have you know kids who will, parents will email me about a picture of a rash and ask me, hey, what should I do with this? And in many ways, I'm, I'm doing a full visit by evaluating that rash on the picture they sent me. I'm discussing the diagnosis and the treatment plan with the parents, and they do it all from home without having to come into the office. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, another thing I'm wondering about though is what about the the I guess the the business is a question I was just thinking of the the business side of this can hospitals still make money with with telemedicine um, because you know are they getting their fees paid? Yeah, so it's an interesting question, and I think it applies very differently to different people. In in a um, in a group like mine within Kaiser Permanente, uh, where we are both the insurance provider and the medical providers, uh, it works incredibly well because we're able to still continue to prevent disease progression. Um, and, and we don't have a need for you know, the continual copay. So for me, taking care of my patients, whether I take care of you virtually or in the office, doesn't make a bit of difference to me. I can do it whichever way is most convenient for my families. Yeah. So, so I want to ask you this. What about um, there are going to be perceived advantages and disadvantages of, of telemedicine. What is Kaiser doing to accentuate those perceived advantages? And what are they doing to address those perceived disadvantages of telemedicine? Sure. So I, I think to address the advantages, um, I think doing those video visits really speak for themselves. The more that we do, the more positive feedback we're getting. In fact, we went from a place prior to April of this year of doing roughly 15, 20% of our visits via telehealth. And then all of a sudden COVID-19 hit. And in April, we did 80% of our visits via telehealth. And so what we've done now is not required, but offered them these telehealth visits as a convenience factor. And I think patients really appreciate that. We're not making them do video visits. We're not making them call us. We're allowing them to do that for in which, whichever way is, is more convenient for them. The disadvantages, you know, you can see on both sides, actually. I think a lot of physicians were skeptical about video visits. Can we actually make an accurate diagnosis? Can we actually treat patients when we're not physically laying hands on them? And the answer is, is it good? The answer is it's amazing, actually. I think without, without this pandemic, without forcing us, I don't think we would have realized what we're capable of over video. It's really forced the hand of providers in a very good way. It's, it's a brave new world. I want to thank uh, Dr. Casey uh, Gray with Kaiser Permanente in Fresno for joining us. Up next, telemedicine sounds great in theory, but how does it work for seniors? Our guest is Laurence Dussault with the San Jose Mercury News and Cal Matters, who's written extensively about the impact of telemedicine on seniors' health care. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, um, so what are the key impediments to uh, seniors fully utilizing uh, tele telemedicine? I assume they've got some unique issues. 
They do. Uh, I think the first one and the most evident is access to home broadband. Um, according to the Census Bureau, 73% of uh, seniors who are low income don't have internet. And so without internet, you cannot get access to healthcare on the web. That's, that's for sure. So that's the first one. Um, loneliness is also, you know, something that's, that's prominent for elders. Um, it's something that is, um, uh, that impedes their mental health, first of all, which is a big part of health for, of health, of health for seniors, pardon. Um, and I remember this one doctor I spoke with who's a UCSF professor of medicine, and she was telling me how every single one of her elderly client um, had to get help from a family member to set up their telemedicine. And so what that tells you is that there's probably a big proportion of our senior population um, who lives alone, that's one out of four senior lives alone in the US, who doesn't have that help to get broadband, download an app, um, you know, set up your Facebook account. You know, one thing I was thinking also is, is think about the kind of the, the medical issues that seniors have, you know, dementia, uh, hearing, vision. I mean, that also plays in this, I would assume as well. It does. A lot of it has to do with, you know, manipulation, how to hear. A lot of these apps are not, um, you know, uh, won't help, won't be helpful for someone who can't hear or has, you know, a blurred vision. Yeah, that's definitely something people have been um, struggling with. Yeah, I mean, so is there any concern that um, that this is increased reliance on telemedicine? This thing is is not going away. Um, is it going to actually reduce seniors' access to healthcare? It already is. Um, and of course, you know, it, we need to be clear on that point. If someone has an urgent need, needs to go to the emergency room, you know, that type of care is still, you know, available for folks. Um, but it's it's the little things, you know, and as you grow older, you have certain needs that we don't as, you know, younger people. Uh, so, for example, I spoke to a man who uh, has big back problems. Um, it's been very painful for him um, and he has not been able to get an assessment. Uh, you know, he's low income elder, does not have uh, broadband, does not have a device. And so um, it has been quite hard for those folks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming that's not a unique story. I'm thinking that that probably is replicated with a lot of seniors um, having, having issues. So let me ask you this. What do you think needs to be done to ensure that uh, seniors benefit from this growing trend toward uh, telemedicine? Well, I think the first the first step would be to have um, a, a standardized approach across the state. The Department of Aging has been talking about making um, telehealth a part of Medicare and Medicaid. So I think that would be um, an ideal solution. In the meantime, um, providers, you know, they tell us to check on the elders that we know, just call, show up, uh, you know, knock and then get back a few feet, ask if they need help. There's a few, you know, there's really interesting work being done by nonprofits, the Community Tech Network uh, in San Francisco, Oakland at Risk in Oakland are doing work right now that, that is helping. Well, I want to thank Laurence uh, Dassault with the San Jose Mercury News and Cal Matters for joining us. Thanks very much. Uh, we're now going to shift our attention to focus on the public policy prescriptions of what might be done to improve the delivery of health care uh, through telehealth. Um, and our guest is uh, State Assemblymember Joaquin Arambula. Uh, he's had some prior experience uh, as a physician working in Selma before he joined the State Assembly. And so he has a pretty unique perspective on this issue uh, from both the public policy side and from a, from a health side. So welcome back to the Matter Report. Thanks for having me again. 
So I want to get your your take on um, how you would assess uh, uh, access to uh, telehealth in California generally and uh, the San Joaquin Valley in particular. Well, I would, if I can, I, I want to go back to a quote that JFK said. He was quoted as talking about the Chinese word for crisis was two characters. One was danger and the other was opportunity. I would say that we're in a huge crisis right now as we are facing the pandemic of the century. And there is danger all around from not getting preventative care that is so important for our community. But there's also an opportunity for us to look towards new modalities and to look towards the future and making sure that we are embracing it. And while I know there are many challenges in the Central Valley in terms of access to broadband, in terms of access to doctors, I see a real opportunity as well during this crisis for us to make sure that we are looking towards telehealth and making sure that we are doing everything we can to embrace it. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, you make a really interesting point there because, you know, for years we've been talking about, you know, certain parts of the state like the San Joaquin Valley that really have experienced real lack of medical medical care professionals. And I'm just wondering, you think telehealth is going to change that? And, you know, one of the issues is uh, specialized medical services, another real problem in places like the Valley. Is telehealth the answer or an answer? Yeah, I, I really look towards uh, this pandemic as providing a magnifying glass on many of the disparities that occurred uh, prior to the pandemic coming. We had these issues with shortage of providers in the Central Valley for decades. Now, I am encouraged that this year in our state budget, we had $15 million that is being allocated towards a medical school in the Valley, in Fresno, that will be ongoing, as that will help us to address some of these disparities. But do acknowledge that we need to work on things like I mentioned earlier, broadband access, so that we can take full advantage of these new modalities like telehealth. But would, yeah. if I could, as you're talking about specialty care, just say what associations are sharing with me, which is that behavioral health visits have increased significantly. We're yeah, I was also wondering about um, you know these community health centers. How does this, how does telehealth fit in with community health centers, which a lot of these rural areas really rely on? Well, that's one of the policy areas I really hope we can fix. There were flexibilities given during this pandemic to encourage payment parity between in-person visits and telehealth visits. That is something that needs to continue into the future so that we can encourage this new modality. Our community needs these behavioral health visits. They need opportunities to see providers who might not be in their backyard and and I think when you have payment parity, you can encourage this new modality and make sure we're connecting people to services and to providers where they're at. So we can do culturally and linguistically competent service so that we're increasing access in a way that is being received by our community. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that, that sometimes these tipping points in history, uh, you know, can really result, like you said early on, right? We're in a crisis, uh, but there's not, there's it's danger. But there's also a tremendous opportunity. So if you look at this from, from a positive standpoint, I mean, perhaps telehealth could really be of a benefit, particularly in those areas that are underserved. Because I know you've done a lot of work trying to bring a, a medical school uh, to the Valley to increase the number of physicians, uh, et cetera. And so this, this could really be, could potentially be the answer. But, you know, obviously we're going to need some public policy prescriptions. So we're going to need some legislation to move this forward on, on lots of different issues. So I want to kind of ask you about that. What are what do you think uh, the, the policies that the state ought to be enacting to kind of improve the, the, uh, you know, the 
delivery of telehealth uh, in regions like the San Joaquin Valley? I'd start by encouraging us to make sure we're uh, leaning into the value that healthcare is a human right. When we are in that place, we can make sure we're providing health care for all. During this pandemic, more than ever, we see that the health of each of us depends on the health of all of us. And so I think it's incumbent on us to make sure we can provide care to all of our community so we can make sure that we stay safe. Preventative care and encouraging people to seek providers and looking towards these new modalities. Training more providers who are in our community by having a medical school here and looking towards payment parity within telehealth. There are three prescriptions that I would look towards uh, uh, in policy areas that I think could help us. You know, one of the things also, too, is just connectivity, right? I mean, making broadband accessible to those rural areas. It, I mean, this is all tied together. It's concentric circles, right? How does, how, do you think the state needs to step in on, on that area and provide more funding for, you know, expansion of broadband? Well, I look at, I have three kids who are doing distance learning now. If you don't have internet access, it's hard for me to feel like you have access to educational opportunities. And if that also is then equated into medical visits, I think that we have to really start thinking of the internet as a utility, as something that's actually required for us to live and would just so, encourage. So, so what's your prognosis, doctor? Are, are, are you feeling fairly positive about this uh, development or, or what do you think? I think it's an, an incredible opportunity for us. I really do, for us to look towards the future and for us to figure out how to make sure people can get services where they're at. I just think back to Selma. Sometimes when it's foggy, people wouldn't come to see me. Sometimes when they didn't have gas, they wouldn't come to see me. Well, now if we can connect via a phone, just like we're talking now, I think there's a real opportunity for us to see a way to increase access. And I think that's something that we should make sure that we encourage in our communities. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Joaquin Arambula, State Assembly Member from, from Fresno. Up next, um, we've been talking about the digital divide. And, you know, for a lot of people, uh, what's at stake is simply the inconvenience of slow internet service. But for those dealing with telemedicine, in the age of telemedicine, it really could be a matter of life and death. And our guest is someone who's trying to close that digital divide. Uh, our guest is Barb Yellowlees, the CEO of HealthLink Now and a board member of the California Emerging Technologies Fund. Welcome to the Maddie Report. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. So you know, I want to ask you about you know, some recent surveys uh, that we've seen that indicate that there's a real disparity uh, on the impact of the virus on various Californians, particularly various demographic groups. And surveys are also showing that there's a direct relationship between uh, household income and the threat posed by health issues like the coronavirus. So how is the California Emerging Technology Fund really dealing with that digital divide? CETF has been focused on eliminating the digital divide for over 13 years. We know the digital divide is just another manifestation of the economic divide, and therefore low-income residents are more likely to lack broadband. We've always recognized that as a reality and been focused on getting broadband out to low-income households. Our goals have always been to drive expansion of broadband across our state for underserved communities, but to also encourage broadband adoption into homes. Our goal is to make sure there's access and adoption of broadband for all Californians, not just some, all Californians. Well, let me ask, 
let me ask you, Barb, how, how are you going to go about doing that? What kind of policies do you want to see at the federal, state, and local level to make that happen? Well, there, there are several things that have to happen, but one thing I wanted to touch on was the impact of COVID-19. Uh, it, it really has come to us that we were sort of ahead of the game in a big way. We've always known that we wanted to get broadband out there, but COVID-19 has made access to broadband even more necessary. This pandemic requires us to stay at home, for many to work at home. Our kids have to do online learning. That means we have to have broadband. Some people just assume everybody has broadband and has computers. That's how we're supposed to live and work. But when you're talking about communities across our state who are low income, that's just not a possibility without help. There are some people that can access their healthcare providers now through telemedicine. A lot of the big health plans switched almost a map automatically. And so these doctors are available to see a lot of people. But for people in low income and some with racial and ethnic groups who are more likely to lack broadband, let alone computers at home, they can't access these resources. They can't connect to school or to the health services that they need. Some of these low-income people, they lost their jobs in restaurants or small businesses. They're struggling to pay the rent to buy food. And we're telling them now, go home and work off computers, have your kids connected. CTF believes that broadband is a basic right and should be available to everyone in our state. Well, what would you what would you tell like leaders in poor communities? What can they do? Like in places like the Valley, um, what they can do to kind of help gain access to uh, healthcare through things like telemedicine? Are there things that local officials can do? There's a lot. Community leaders actually need to be the digital champions. They need to fight for their communities. They need to become educated themselves and to speak out to local, state, and federal elected legislators. They need to promote funding for broadband and what we're really pushing for is broadband and for funding telemedicine. This pandemic has made it clear that it's actually essential for our survival. CETF is grateful to Fresno State and the other San Joaquin Valley leaders. They have really been at the forefront of supporting telemedicine and broadband for many years. They are currently supporting a bill that we're sponsoring, AB 570, that is seeking funding for telemedicine and distance learning. We're also working in the San Juan, well, the San Joaquin Valley period is represented by some very strong voices in our state legislature. I don't think that's news to you. Um, Sonny McPeak, our CEO, has been working directly with Dr. Joaquin Arambula to help uh, expand telemedicine and broadband in California. Well, you know, it's you know a lot of stuff going on here, and obviously, I think it's going to be accelerating in the future. I want to thank our, our guest, Barb Yellies, with the California Emergency Technology Fund. Thank you so much for being with us. I want to thank our other guests, uh, Dr. Casey Gray with Kaiser Permanente, uh, Lawrence DeSalt with the San, San Jose Mercury News and Cal Matters, and State Assembly Member Juan Keen Arambula. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Matter Report. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Matter Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org.
The Maddie Report. Valley Views Edition is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.